Coming up on today's show, yet another big day in the news. The UN General Assembly continues in New York. Vladimir Putin delivering a speech today, mobilizing up to 300,000 new troops in the conflict with Ukraine. Marcus Kolga gives the details on what that may mean. And we'll also talk about airline restrictions. Apparently, they're due to be removed in our country. Our world is in peril and paralyzed. Geopolitical divides are undermining the work of the Security Council, undermining international law, undermining trust and people's faith in democratic institutions, undermining all forms of international cooperation. We cannot go on like this. Secretary General Antonio Guterres of the United Nations in his opening address yesterday, of course, it's uh, the massive UN gathering that's taking place this week in New York City and painting a pretty dire picture, uh, running through a long list of things that he sees as major crises around the globe and then saying, yeah, and we're not in a position as an international community to really address any of them because of some of the issues we're facing as well. Uh, much more happening today. Zelensky of Ukraine uh, is scheduled to address the United Nations remotely. Joe Biden speaking this morning. So there's a lot happening at the United Nations. So we're going to walk through that and get an update on uh, what might be discussed and if there'll be any sort of progress made. And to do that, we're joined by uh, Reza Hazmath, who is a professor in political science at the University of Alberta. Professor, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Uh, good morning. Um, obviously, that opening statement from Antonio Guterres, uh, typically it's sort of, this is the challenges that we're facing. That's how the uh, assembly usually starts. But yesterday it seemed pretty dire and, and pretty urgent from Guterres. So, yes. Um, I mean, his main message was we need to overcome divisions, uh, that the world is divided, that, um, you know, there are major issues that we need to tackle. And uh, we're not equipped to do so, at least in his worldview, uh, to, because of these divisions. Yeah, and he's talking about, you know, uh, all kinds of different things. And let's just touch on a couple of them. Um, war, obviously, and that's the focus for a lot of the leaders speaking today. The situation in Ukraine on the minds of, well, almost everybody in attendance, correct? Oh, definitely. In fact, um, most of the speeches have actually touched on, on Ukraine and Russia and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in terms of, I mean, there's no UN resolution. NATO is basically the, the one side of this conversation. But what kind of things are being said at the UN and um, what might they be trying to do uh, throughout the assembly this week? So they're a bit hampered in terms of what they can actually do because Russia is a permanent member and they will veto anything the Security Council. But for the General Assembly, it's more of a signaling what states actually uh, think, um, you know, what the world of affairs are and what Russia's aggression towards Ukraine is. And the majority of states have actually uh, condemned the aggression. Um, they're a bit alarmed. In fact, President Biden is speaking right now mm -hmm. and he's talking about this idea that, you know, you know, we have to be alarmed by Russia's invasion, but even more so, uh, their, their new movement towards um, having a referendum for these breakaway or rather these disputed territories. And that would mean Russia can actually defend it on those territories with nuclear weapons if need be. And that's very alarming, of course. Yeah, and Russia, we should say, not in attendance. Um, they're not at the UN general, or Putin at least isn't at the General Assembly. There was some speculation that Biden might move to have Russia kicked out of the UN. We don't expect that to happen, right? No, not realistically. And in fact, history has told us that's the worst guy to actually kick out a, a permanent member, a major member of the international community. We do want um, all, as many member states, if not all member states, be part of this institution and, and global institutions in particular, because that opens that avenue for conversation, that opens that avenue for negotiations. So that would be a, a, a really terrible move if they were to propose that.
One of the other things that a lot of the leaders are talking about and I find very interesting is the war on democracy and disinformation. And as you say, Gutierrez talked about that, the division that's uh, taking place. And uh, But a lot of people talking about the very institutions of democracy around the world are under attack right now. So we are seeing a rise of extremism across the world, not only in the traditional areas, but we're seeing this in Eastern Europe. We're seeing this in parts of the U.S., parts of Canada even. So there is... Um, growing sort of extremism. And that's, you know, tied to many of the other themes we're talking at the UN, hunger, um, climate change. Yeah. I mean, look, we just came out of a, of a I mean, we're still at the tail end of a, of a major pandemic and economies are shattered all over the world, relatively speaking. So, um, you know, that's what, you know, when, when, when Secretary General Guterres is talking about overcoming divisions, it's really within this sort of major context that, look, you know, we are in a fragile place as a society, as a global society right now. And we need to be very careful to, you know, come together and actually try and overcome these major challenges because we're, we're not actually meeting the objectives in these um, sustainable development goals, for example. We're not meeting them. We're not meeting the objectives for so many of the major milestones we set for ourselves. And you know what? And you're absolutely right. We set these goals. We don't reach them. And then now we've got these new emerging crises that Gutierrez was talking about in form, you know, climate change. That's not a new one. Um, but the global energy crisis that's now looming and, and the food security crisis that's looming. And those are really pressing issues, not the kind of thing you can push down the road or miss targets on. Oh, for definitely. These, these are things that, um, you know, nations need to come together to actually try and tackle as a, as a, as a community. And it's interesting because, you know, we, in the last two decades, we've been talking about what role should the UN have? Is it needed yeah. even? And, and we always have these conversations around this time when the General Assembly meets. And, you know, at the end of the day, look, the, the United Nations General Assembly does not have the same power it once did. It's not a unit. It can't take us. It can't dictate the society to do X, Y, and Z. But it's still a great signal. It's still a great place for uh, nations to come together and, 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 and think, at least have big thoughts about how to overcome world challenges. And, and there's, there's a utility in that. But like you say, practically, don't expect any solutions to be offered at the end of the week, right? I mean, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. These are major issues that take a long time. Just having a buy-in by states to actually have these conversations, go through multilateralism, go through bilateralism, go through the various institutions that exist globally. I mean, that's just, this is just a, 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 one of us, a stopgap for a long-term sort of problem solving. Uh, great discussion. Uh, Risa, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. Two hours ago in Russia, Vladimir Putin delivered a seven-minute televised address to his nation, um, and a lot happened in that address. He talked about mobilizing as many as 300,000 um, reservists could be brought into the war. He talked about uh, nuclear threats, said it's not a bluff, all kinds of things. So to go through the latest developments, uh, a big day with the whole Russia-Ukraine situation. We're going to chat now with Mark the most. Olga. Founder of DisinfoWatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Marcus, thank you for joining us once again. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on, Shay. So, I guess the big headline here, the number one takeaway mobilizing possibly hundreds of thousands of reservists. What does that tell us about how Putin is viewing the progress of the situation right now? Well, Shay, look, we're, we're in the seventh month of what Vladimir Putin initially called a three-day operation to denazify Ukraine. Um, things have not been going well. 
Um, they've been on a downward slide over the past several months. And in, in the last two weeks, we've seen massive gains by the Ukrainian army in, in the east of Ukraine and, and now in the south of Ukraine. And um, I think that, you know, this, this mobilization, um, the, the, uh, the statement that uh, there are going to be four areas of eastern Ukraine where, where Russia has illegally occupied territory, they're going to be holding sham referendums. Uh, to uh, call on, on Russia to accept them as, as part of Russia. Um, all of this, what it tells me is that Vladimir Putin is desperate. He is in a panic. Um, the, uh, the situation domestically in Russia is rapidly deteriorating. Uh, support for his war is fading. Um, and th- with this conscription, call for uh, conscription, uh, and the mobilization of, of these 300,000 uh, men, and this may only be the, the, the beginning, right. there is a mass flight of, of, of Russian men leaving uh, Russia. Uh, apparently, all the flights out of Russia for the next two weeks are completely booked up. Uh, so things are not going well. Things are deteriorating domestically. Uh, and and I, like I said, Vladimir Putin is right now in in a serious panic. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the cost of flights has soared uh, to about ten thousand dollars U.S. to get out of the country, and they're sold out. Uh, it just mass panic to get out. Um, okay, so let's walk through a couple of things. First of all, uh, it's not like he's just reaching down and getting three hundred thousand fully trained, ready to go, and equipped soldiers. He's talking about getting guys out of prison, expanding the age up to sixty. Like it's not like this is an immediate re- reactionary force, even right? No, you're absolutely right, and, and thanks for bringing up that initial one of those points that uh, that he's uh, he's trying to enlist conscripts. Uh, there's a his the man that they call Putin's chef, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who runs a, a private military contract group called Wagner, which has been involved in all sorts of atrocities in in Africa over the past few years. Uh, there was a video that emerged just uh, three or four days ago where he went into one of Russia's most notorious prisons, filled with murderers and rapists and such. And, uh, and suggested to all of these, these prisoners, these convicts, that if they served on the, on the front, that they would, they would eventually be released. And, uh, so far he's been able to enlist 3,000 convicts. Um, one of them, according to a report two days ago, is a cannibal. Uh, he was, he was, uh, imprisoned for eating people, killing oh, people and then eating them. These are the types of people that Vladimir Putin is trying to enlist into his, into his failing effort right now. Uh, and, uh, to, you know, further to your point about the, uh, the conscripts, the 300,000 that he's looking at, these are not, uh, you know, battle hardened troops. These are people that may have been gone through training, uh, you know, 10 right. years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, even like you said, 60 year old men. Um, it's not necessarily going to help him in the front. And this is not instantaneous either. It's not like these men will suddenly appear tomorrow. Um, it's going to take a lot of time to get them uh, trained up, to get them equipped to go to the front. And even then, there's uh, there's no, you know, I don't think there's any indication that it'll, it'll help. Right now, what we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks is, is Russian troops uh, deserting their positions, um, just jumping out of their, their tanks and, and fleeing, running literally back to Russia. And there's no reason to believe that the morale will be any different with these conscripts. So I'm not sure that it's going to make too much of a, a difference on the ground uh, with these conscripts if they ever do arrive to the front. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the equipment that Vladimir Putin has is, has been breaking down. Um, the sanctions that we've imposed on him have uh, inhibited his ability to actually, they've terminated his ability to fix any of those weapons. So he's using uh, basically Soviet-era museum pieces on the front lines right now, and they're no match you know, for the Ukrainian army and certainly the Western weapons 
that we've supplied them. So, uh, yeah, the situation, even with these conscripts, doesn't mean it's, it, I don't think it'll change the situation too much uh, tactically or strategically on the ground. And I think that uh, Ukraine will continue having this success, even though the conscripts are going to be arriving in, in the coming months. Marcus, as you said, we're, we're, you know, we're seven months into this now, and it hasn't been going well for some time. Is the hesitation or the fact that it's taken this long for Putin to try and pull some lever that he may have access to because it's wildly popular, unpopular within Russia, and this kind of comes across as an admission that things are not going well and any support that he might have within the country will be further eroded and put him at more peril? Well, yeah, that's a great point, uh, Shay. That uh, you know, there, the, the war hasn't been entirely popular, but there hasn't been that much criticism of it either, uh, or there hasn't been much broad criticism of it. Um, there were initial uh, protests in the first few weeks, but they were violently repressed. Uh, there were some fifteen thousand protesters who were detained and, and put into prison. They're facing charges, and many of them up to ten years in prison. Uh, and so that was quite effective in silencing any criticism. But, uh, of course, over the past uh, week or two, we've seen that criticism rise. We've seen uh, uh, municipal councillors in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, at least 50 of them, they've put together a public petition calling on Vladimir Putin to resign. Um, there are various different oligarchs who have spoken out about the war. But most importantly, uh, Russia's most popular pop singer, Ala Pugacheva, yeah. um, who was seen as a very close ally of Vladimir Putin's over the years, often, often seen partying and dining together, she came out two days ago and criticized this war. So if that's the case, you know, there are definite cracks appearing. I think that's one reason why we're seeing this uh, this panic sort of conscription, these threats of nuclear war, is that the, the situation domestically is deteriorating for Vladimir Putin, and he needs to respond somehow. Uh, because ultimately, you know, the end of Vladimir Putin will not come in any other way other than a sort of a grassroots uprising by the, the, the people of Russia. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, as someone who's been watching uh, Vladimir Putin for the past 20 years, um, you know, I see the seeds of that being planted right now, and I, I would argue that this could be what we're seeing right now could be the beginning of the end of Vladimir Putin. Wow. Um, now, the other question that comes up every time we talk about this, that desperation that you're talking about, when he is pushed into that corner, when he is that desperate, the end of Vladimir Putin, he was talking about nuclear weapons again today and saying, it is not a bluff. Is it a bluff? How real is that risk, Marcus? Well, look, uh, I think that we have to assume, I mean, this guy is desperate. Um, he is a rat that is, in the, uh, that is being forced into a corner right now. Um, he's actually, we haven't forced him into a corner. He's forced himself into that corner due to his own incompetence and the people around him. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we should expect him to lash out. Uh, he has biological weapons, chemical weapons. He has nuclear weapons. He has not hesitated over the past seven months to target tens of thousands of civilians who have been killed, hospitals, schools um, in, in Ukraine. So, you know, this is, we're dealing with someone who not only, I don't think he has a moral conscience, I think he's a little bit, um, you know, a, a bit of a psychopath as well. So I don't, I, I would expect him to use some sort of uh, tactics to, to tr or some sort of mass wep massive weapons of mass destruction to further terrorize um, Ukraine. But I, I wouldn't, I would be extremely surprised if he used any sort of uh, nuclear weapons, especially the kind of nuclear weapons that might threaten uh, European nations or, or Canada or the United States. Um, because the one thing that the, the single goal that Vladimir Putin has is survival. 
And, uh, you know, if he were to engage in a, in a broader sort of nuclear conflict, um, that would mean the end of Vladimir Putin. He knows that. So if, when he's talking about nuclear weapons, he may be threatening the use of tactical nuclear weapons. These are, these are nuclear weapons with very, uh, you know, limited, um, a destructive yield uh, that can be used on, you know, uh, parts of a city on the battlefield and such. Right. He may do that, but I don't think that there's a, there's any threat of a, of a broader nuclear conflict, although he would like to uh, make us believe that he is actually threatening that. Um, that strategic tactical uh, nuke that you're talking about, would that demand a response from the West, though? Biden has told him, don't, do not do that. Does that red line stand if it's, like you say, something strategic, tactical, and not widespread? Well, um, I mean, that's a good question. I think the West would have to respond in some way. Now, whether that, you know, I don't think that it's a nuclear response necessarily, um, but we need to, I think that it would require us to increase the, the, the kinds of weapons that we're sending the, to the Ukrainians. Um, you know, these, you know, that should include perhaps long range artillery, the kind of artillery that might strike into places like Crimea and other parts yeah. of, of Ukraine that are occupied by Russia. So yeah, I mean, it would, it would require a response. I just don't think that the West would necessarily respond escalated with, 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 escalate with nuclear weapons. Gotcha. Marcus, uh, incredible insight as always. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, actually, we brought it up yesterday because there was all kinds of reporting yesterday. Uh, it was, uh, I don't want to say confirmed because at this point it's still sources and there's nothing official from the federal government. But by all accounts and everything we can see, it looks like, um, the, um, restrictions that continue to be in place for air travelers in Canada should be gone. Uh, within a little more than a week. We're going to chat now with uh, John Gradick, who is with McGill's Aviation Management Program. John, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. No problem. It's my pleasure to be here. So it sounds to uh, everybody that's paying attention here that the vaccine mandate for foreign travelers arrive can and the random testing are going to go. Is, 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 is that what you're hearing too? I'm hearing it. There's nothing confirmed right. just yet. I think we're, we're still talking to, uh, to to the officials in Ottawa to try to get consensus uh, on uh, the date they want to do it. And it's got to be coordinated with our U.S. friends as well because, you know, they have their vaccination mandate that's required for non-nationals. So I think there's a, there's a bit of coordination that has to happen across the borders as well as domestically. So some work to do yet. Is everybody on board? Like, I mean, I, I know even NDP MPs were, were coming out yesterday saying, yeah, this is a good idea. We support this. I, I haven't seen anybody saying, no, no, don't do this. It seems like everybody's on board, right? Yeah, I think everybody's kind of saying, OK, enough is enough. I think we're, we've, we've, run, you know, we've run the course of all of these mandates. And I think right now the issue is, you know, how do we progressively peel back the bureaucracy that we had instituted over the last couple of years and, and managing the mandates and managing the spread of COVID-19. So it, it is a question right now of unraveling the puzzle and making sure we don't, you know, drop the ball on too many things as we unravel it. Right, yeah. Uh, in terms of the impact that still having it in place has had, you know, I mean, we, we had uh, a spokesman, I think it was um, the Edmonton International yesterday, saying, yeah, you know, if we do this, it'll just bring us in line with more than 50 other countries and most of our international partners that long ago removed these restrictions. So how much of a burden has it been on Canada's aviation industry to, to have these rules hanging around? 
Well, I think, you know, the, the, the biggest rule change that we're going to see happening is probably the, on the arrivals, on the arrival side for international passengers, uh, you know, and that's been the thorn in everybody's side in as much as, you know, you arrive into London or you arrive into the EU or you arrive into any most other countries, uh, there really isn't much of a debate about your health status, your quarantine status, or your your vaccination status. So, you know, those types of questions and that type of submission of documentation is not required in most of the world. Uh, and, you know, I think Canada is really uh, coming a little late to the party mm-hmm. to, to, look, to, to join that same uh, removal of requirements. So I think that that's going to be the biggest uh, impact uh, on international arrivals. Uh, there's not going to be much change domestically. Uh, we're still going to be seeing masks, um, you know, and that's, that probably will stick around for a couple of months yet uh, until such time as the government feels comfortable that, you know, we've got the, the variants under control. Uh, but I think that, you know, the Arrive Can app will still stick around. It will stick around. It probably won't be used for vaccination statuses yeah. or, 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 uh, or testing statuses. It'll be used basically as a means of validating that you are properly documented for entry into Canada. And uh, that's going to be a new variation on what the Arrive Can app is going to look for. And there's going to be an education process required on that one as well. So we're not out of the woods yet on the right hand. Right. Yeah. That's what we're hearing. Optional and sort of like a, a customs declaration way of doing that, if, if you so choose. Um, there's been, I know a lot of people, I've spoken to a lot of people who are really gun shy about traveling internationally because of what we've seen at airports. And I know there's a lot of people that say it's because of this. It's because of the testing. It's because of Arrive Can. Um, how true is that? And how much of a difference might this make to the operation? of airlines in Canada. It's a, obviously, it's a little more streamlined, but will it make a huge difference? No, it's not going to make that much of a difference. I think that, you know, if you if you look at, you know, for those people, for those of us that have used the Rive Can on international arrivals, uh, you know, we used to be able, we used to have to fill in that declaration form. Uh, we had to write in a whole bunch yep. of information. And, you know, and, and, and Canada has basically moved into the 21st century uh, with the Rive Can app gathering the same type of information. So it's nothing any, it's not different. It's, it's probably easier. Uh, and it's, you know, you basically don't have to, the customs officer doesn't have to read through your declaration anymore. You just flash the arrive can app. It's, it flashes green. You're go. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a very different process. It's going to take a while for everybody to get used to it. But once you've done it a few times, you're in pretty good shape. And I think that that's what's going to happen is that there's going to have to be a re-education process and a reintroduction of what the arrive can app should look like. Um, but and that's going to cause some grief in a very short term. But after a while, after two or three months, it should settle down. Yeah, excellent. Okay, uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.